Before we begin, let's make sure that we are ready to study God's Word together this morning. We have uh, first hour. I know we covered a lot, but that's the big picture. The next several weeks, we're going to be going back and looking at the details, but so often we have to get that big umbrella picture before we can understand it. And in some ways, the same thing's happening in John 3. This week in both passages was just phenomenal what I was able to... uh, to see here, as many times as I've studied both of these passages, the uh, Lord was just showing new things to me as I dug through these passages. So it's exciting, and this is so critical to our understanding of everything that's going on in our spiritual life. So let's begin with a word of prayer. Make sure we're filled with the Holy Spirit. Use of 1 John 1, nine, then we'll go forward. Our Lord, we thank you so much that we can gather together in freedom to worship you this morning, to sing praises to your name because of who you are and what you have done for us, and to study your word that we might explore in greater depth all that you have done for us and that all, all that you have provided for us in the unique spiritual life of the church age. Father, we pray that as we learn what you have done, that we will be motivated and challenged to go forward, to pursue spiritual adulthood, that we might not be distracted by the tests of adversity that come our way for the cares of the world, but that we might keep our focus on the goal of glorifying you. Now, Father, as we study your word this morning and look at this important passage, help us to understand the dynamics of our salvation even more. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Even moral people who are convinced of their own righteousness, sometimes in the wee hours of the morning when they're somewhat honest with themselves, will doubt that all their good deeds and all their good works are really sufficient enough to gain them salvation. We have a case in point this morning in John chapter 3. Here we find a man who by almost any standard of religious activity, is someone who would be thought to have secured his place in heaven for all eternity. But apparently when alone, this man, like so many others, if they possess integrity and the least little bit of honesty, when they begin to question their own life and evaluate their own good deeds, their their ritual and the religion, they realize are insufficient to provide them what they really want. So here we find a man who has just a little bit of courage, but he screws up his courage to confront his concerns. This episode with Nicodemus is one that John the Apostle weaves into his narrative in order to teach us many things about the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's review where we are in John. We're now in John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. We need to remind ourselves of the theme. Why did the Apostle John write this Gospel? John 20, 30, and 31, these things, these signs, are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life through His name. John writes to show that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. And he presents the evidence for this claim. The evidence is so powerful and so overwhelming that the Jews had no excuse for rejecting him. His condemnation and God's condemnation of Israel was indeed just. There was more than enough evidence to substantiate Jesus Christ's claim to salvation. The issues are not, therefore, based upon credentials They're not based on lack of evidence. If they just knew more, the issue is individual volition. It is not that people do not know the truth. That is often not the problem. It's not that they don't have enough evidence. It's that they do not want to believe the truth. Romans 1 says they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The issue is not you have to be smarter, you have to know more, you have to understand more, you have to take five courses in apologetics in order to witness more clearly and that somehow you're just not smart enough, not good enough, not articulate enough to witness to people. That's not the issue. The issue in 
witnessing is always the Holy Spirit, who's the sovereign executor of evangelism, is the one who works to help people understand the gospel. Your job and my job is simply to present the facts that Jesus is the Christ, who died on the cross as our substitute, and that by faith alone in Christ alone you can have eternal life. And just because people reject Christ does not mean that we have failed in presenting the gospel. It doesn't mean that people uh, don't understand it. All too often the problem is that people do understand it. They just do not want to have anything to do with God or with Jesus Christ. And that's the case that was discovered by Jesus in Jerusalem during his first visit that is covered from chapter 2, verse 12 through the end of chapter 3. So the first thing that we see here by way of introduction, is that the Apostle John is presenting the claims of Jesus to be the Messiah and that they were, those claims were overwhelming. The second thing we see, uh, we need to be reminded of and have seen, is John's particular style. Remember, this is written by an older man, a man who is close to 90 years old, if not a little older, and that he has reflected upon these things since they happened when he was a young man, probably 20 years of age. So, on the basis of all of these years, he arranges his material in such a way as to bring out for us a much deeper significance. This is one of the challenging things about studying this gospel. At a surface level, if you read through the gospel, there are many things that you can learn and understand, and you can come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ as your Savior. But if you stop and you start taking it apart and unweaving the various strands that are here, You can go deeper and deeper and deeper. You cannot exhaust the text. Sometimes I feel a little exhausted on Sunday morning as I've thought about this over and over again, and all of a sudden I start seeing things that I hadn't seen earlier in the week. And How can I pack all this in in one hour on Sunday morning? It's not... when, when, When I say that John arranges his material so that there is a deeper significance, I'm not saying that this is allegorical. One of the greatest heresies that came into the early church was the whole principle of allegorical interpretation. And there are some people today, there are even a few who have come out of some doctrinal churches that have slipped into this type of interpretation. And I want you to understand that I'm not doing this. John Gospel can be understood at a couple of different levels, but not to the expense of any other level. In other words, what allegory does is allegory says, well, you have the text at a physical level, and there's a spiritual truth, and the physical level is irrelevant or it didn't happen. You often hear this with creation. The creation story in Genesis 1 through 3 is merely an allegory. There was no literal Adam or Eve. That's allegory. But literal interpretation will say, yes, there was a physical Adam and Eve, and there's much that we can learn from them, But you can look at them from a different perspective and draw out some spiritual implications and applications. And so you might have a spiritual emphasis there as well. There are different levels at which you can perceive truth from the text, all of which are valid. What happens with some people is they say, oh yeah, you can come along and there's the physical sense of the text and you have the various lines of the text, but you have to read between the lines. And then the Holy Spirit will will reveal some truths to you about the reality at a higher level of doctrine. And and often that so-called spiritual truth that's derived from reading between the lines is in contradiction to the literal truth of the passage. And the literal truth of the passage becomes irrelevant and reduced in significance to emphasize this so-called higher spiritual truth. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about the fact that John while emphasizing the literal historical events of the four days that took place in the life of John the Baptist. These are four literal days, and everything that happened on those days happened as John tells us they did. But as John the, the writer, under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, having reflected on these things over all of these years, looks back, he sees a further significance to these events. That on day one you have discussion with John the Baptist who, rec- who represents Old Testament prophets and the Old Testament dispensation. Then you have the coming of Jesus representing the uh, hypostatic union and the call of the disciples Andrew and Peter 
representing the church age. And then you have uh, Nathaniel, who represents, excuse me, up here you have uh, John and Andrew on the second day. They represent the church age, church age believers. On the third day, you have, um, calling him Nathaniel, who represents true Israel. And then after the fourth days, I'm getting confused here. First day, Jesus represents hypostatic union. Andrew and John on the third day represent the true church. Nathaniel represents the remnant of Israel that is restored during the tribulation period. And then the wedding feast, which comes two days later, the wedding feast itself represents the millennial kingdom. And so what John says, as he goes back and he looks at these events, he, he narrates them in a way for us that help foreshadow a, a, a different level of spiritual truth related to the different dispensations and the different ages. So we have to understand these things about John's style. Another thing we see about the style of the Apostle John is that he is always taking physical things from the immediate environment, that Jesus is taking these physical things and using them to illustrate spiritual truth. He talks about, back in John chapter 1, he uh, talks to Philip, uh, or he talks to Nathaniel about seeing him under the fig tree. And he talks about this thing in, in his natural environment, and then he expands upon that to apply it to spiritual truth. In the temple, when he is, uh, after he has run out the money changers and the Pharisees challenge him, he says, destroy this temple, and he refers to the temple surround right there, the naos, the inner temple, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. So he's taking that which is in the immediate physical environment. In, in John chapter 4, when he's talking to the woman at the well, he's talking about if you will drink the water that I give you, you will never thirst again. So he's taking the element of the water that's right there in the immediate vicinity to use to teach spiritual truth. And you could go through every chapter of John to note these things about how the Apostle John is emphasizing this. And these kinds of trends and themes are important to be able to accurately understand and interpret the text. So now we come to this event at the beginning of chapter 3. Remember, there were no chapter divisions in the original. So let's read, beginning in verse 23 of chapter 2, to pick up the context and forget that there's a chapter division there. There's no real break. It's just the flow of John's writing. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name, beholding his signs which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. Now, we saw in our study of that passage that these were true believers. They were believing on his name, which is a classic phrase throughout the gospel that is all that is required, according to the writer, uh, for salvation is to trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what name refers to. But Jesus, we're told here in his deity and his omniscience, this is evidence of his deity, he knew what was in man. And he would not entrust himself to men because he knew that they did not have the courage of their convictions. And because, verse 25, and because he did not need anyone to bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees. See, we have laid out the principle that Jesus has revealed himself. There have been those who have believed, but he's not going to entrust himself to them because he knows what's in man. And now we're going to look at a case study, a particular man, Nicodemus. So the first thing we want to see here is that with Nicodemus, that now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, that this man is a case study. He is an example of what has been going on in the previous chapter. That he is someone who represents this principle. Uh, he's not a believer yet, but he is, has no courage, no convictions, and is somewhat timid. So Nicodemus is to be understood as one of those in this class of people at the end of chapter 2. Secondly, John is showing us that many of those in chapter 2 
included many among the highest echelons of Jewish society. He is showing us that those who believed in Jesus and accepted his claims to be Messiah are not from among the rabble and are not the unlearned and uneducated of Galilee. But they also included the intellectuals, the religious elite, and the powerful politicians of of Jerusalem. Nicodemus was a member of the Sanhedrin, which is the governing body of Israel. As such, he would be like a member of Congress, a senator, or a uh, congressman. He was one of the most prominent men in Jerusalem. He was very wealthy. He was among the most successful people, successful businessmen in Jerusalem, and he was also intensely devoted to the pursuit of spiritual truth. So John wants us to understand that Jesus' ministry impacted everyone throughout the strata of Jewish society. Now, Nicodemus is very concerned about what many today call the spiritual side of life. Now, that's really a misnomer because they don't understand a thing about the spiritual side of life. Isn't it interesting how in our culture today we've taken this word spiritual and people use it to represent anything that's not physical, and they have no clear definition of it. In fact, if you listen to one person's use of the word spiritual and compare it to the next person's use of the word spiritual, they mean totally different things. They have no real sense of what spirituality is all about. And Nicodemus is in that class. He's not real sure what spirituality is. He's been caught up with in ritual instead of reality. He's concerned about the following of the Mosaic Law and all the precepts of the Mosaic Law in order to somehow substantiate or to gain righteousness so that he can have a standing before God. He thinks that somehow he is going to do something to do enough to impress God to save him. But what he is going to learn from Jesus is that spirituality is based on a relationship, not on ritual. That it's based on regeneration and not religion. And remember, religion is man doing the work so that God will bless him. And what we learn from this is that religion is the enemy of true Christianity. So Nicodemus is taken as a case study. to show that that all that Jesus has said has penetrated the highest levels of Jewish society. The third thing we see here is that the evidence Jesus presented, the evidence that took place back in chapter 2 with the miracle of changing the water into wine at Cana, and then the miracles that he performed once he came to Jerusalem for the Passover, cleansing the temple was clearly understood by the Pharisees, is a claim to be the Messiah. Because when he did that, we saw in verse 19, that when they came to him, they said, "What, what sign? What sign do you show to us, seeing that you do these things? And Jesus answered them. They are clearly asking a question about his claim to be Messiahship, and Jesus is answering that to show that he is the Messiah. The evidence is overwhelming. Later on in verse 23, it emphasizes that he did many signs while he was in Jerusalem. So his credentials were overwhelming. There could be no excuse. It was obvious to everyone that Jesus fulfilled all the required credentials explained in the Old Testament. His claims were valid. So the issue isn't lack of evidence or a paucity of knowledge. The issue is hostility to the truth and an arrogant commitment to prior religious convictions. You see, that's the problem with so many people. They're committed to the religion they grew up with, the denomination they grew up with, whatever they heard from the parents or didn't hear. They're committed to their own arrogance because they think they're smart enough and they've rejected God and no one can prove that God exists because we can't put him in a test tube. So the issue isn't are the claims valid or are there enough claims, but the issue is that people are often committed to a prior religious position. And no matter what you say, they will never be shaken because that may pressure me too much. I may, it may put me in a situation where my peers 
and my family reject me. So I'm not even going to consider objectively your claims to the truth. So the issue often isn't knowledge. It isn't a lack of evidence. It is simply hostility to the truth. So if you're witnessing to somebody and they do not believe, it is not because of, your, of lack of evidence or your fault, your faulty presentation of the gospel, but it's their rebellion against the truth of God's word. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> now, a fourth thing that we need to observe here that John wants us to see is that though people in Jerusalem, many people, believed in Jesus, their faith was very weak. Now, with all that was going on in Jerusalem, with the temple and all of the typology of the sacrifices and the offerings and Passover and everything else, and all of the signs and all of the miracles, we would naturally expect thousands to be flocking to Jesus. But that's not what happens in Jerusalem. Later we see it happen in Galilee when he's in the north. But in Jerusalem, though many believe in his name, they don't flock to him. They're, they're afraid. There's a timidity there. They lack the courage of their convictions. And there are many others who reject his claims and do not follow him. And what we see here is that though in Jerusalem there was a conservatism, a religious conservatism, it wasn't a biblical conservatism. And I want you to understand that there's a vast difference between a conservative position and a biblically conservative position. This is one of the problems we're running into today in our society because you have groups like the so-called religious right or Christian right which is often not Christian and sometimes not right. And the biggest problem is they are politicizing their religious convictions and identifying them with a political position. And this is one of the most dangerous things that we can do because then the claims of Christ become muddy and clouded over by political concerns. And the gospel and Christianity are not political issues. Now, the truths of Scripture may have political implications. And you may study Scripture and you may derive certain conclusions from the Scripture that impact how you vote. But they do not, the Scripture does not set forth any, any identification with a particular political position or political party. In fact, one of the things I see in the arrogance of, of many so-called Christians and fundamentalists today as they get involved with, with politics is they usually take one issue or another and make that sort of the litmus test for who they're going to vote for. And, and they're so, so inconsistent that they'll look at one cat candidate that they agree with 70 or 80 percent, and yet they don't agree with them on this one litmus test issue. And so they'll either not vote or they'll vote for the other candidate who disagrees on 90 or 100 percent of the issues just because they're making that one issue the overarching issue. And the thing is, when we look at any candidate, nobody's going to agree or be right 100 percent of the time. What you have to look at is candidates that have a general position that is right, that is consistent with scriptural outlooks. Now, they may be wrong here or wrong there. You may wish they took a different position here or there. But don't make any one thing a litmus test. And don't try to identify any political situation with, uh, or political conservatism with biblical conservatism. There may be a lot of similarities and there may be an overlap. But do not confuse Christianity with a political position. Now, in, in this conservative environment of Jerusalem, they had identified, they had made this mistake. And so they thought they were right and yet they were tragically wrong. So we come to verse 1. Let me read the first, uh, let's see, <clears throat> read the first four verses, or five verses as, as we start. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now let's begin with verse 1. Learn something about the participants in this wonderful conversation. What we're going to see is Jesus has a wonderful skill at conversing with people. There's a, a repartee going on here. It's almost like a fencing duel between Jesus and Nicodemus. As Nicodemus is asking these sort of third-party questions, you know the kind where you go to the pastor and you're talking about some problem in your life and you say, well, I have a friend. And this friend has this problem. So Nicodemus is talking in this third-person, abstract, academic way. And so Jesus just goes along with him and sets it up. And they're parrying back and forth to get to the real heart of the issue. It must have been fun to sit around with the disciples and to just watch how Jesus dialogued with people and how he understood them. Because this is, remember, this is an illustration of the principle at the end of chapter 2, that Jesus knows exactly what is in the hearts of men. So he is able to pierce to the very issue that they're, that they're dealing with, even though they may be very timid in bringing it out and coming right to the point. So we look at Nic- this man, Nicodemus. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. Now, he's, he's appropriately named, for his name is a Greek name, which in its root form means a ruler of the people. So he is born into Jewish aristocracy. He has been trained from childhood in the Scriptures. And we know that because he is a Pharisee, he is a religious conservative. He is incredibly moral. He is consistently righteous. He does everything he can to dot every I and cross every T when it comes to obedience to the Mosaic Law. So if anyone is going to have the right to say to God, you ought to let me into heaven because I'm living the right kind of life, it would be Nicodemus. Yet Nicodemus is honest enough with himself to know that at his very best, he's not sure that he's really good enough. And if Nicodemus at his very best is not good enough, then the rest of us at our very best fall far short of a man like Nicodemus. That's why Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the, of the scribes and the Pharisees, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Because they had the very highest standard of personal righteousness. And Jesus said, if your righteousness isn't as good as the righteousness of the Pharisees, and everybody's saying, but how can our righteousness be better? They're at the very top. And Jesus said, unless your righteousness is better... You can't see the kingdom of God. Why? Because the righteousness that God demands is absolute, perfect righteousness with no flaws whatsoever. Remember, what the righteousness of God demands, the justice of God executes, motivated by the love of God and expressed by the grace of God. And so our righteousness, no matter how good it is, is still relative. Compared to other people, we may have tremendous morality and exceptional righteousness and everyone may look to us as a paragon of virtue but when God looks at us he's not comparing us to other people he's never going to look at you and compare your righteousness with your brother or your sister or your friend or your co-worker he's going to look at you and look at your righteousness and that is compared to his absolute standard and so God says that all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags that no matter how good we are it never, never comes close to meeting his absolute standard. Well, Nicodemus is the kind, of person, the kind of person that we would look at and think, if anybody could do it, Nicodemus could do it. He was a Pharisee. But Nicodemus was also a rather timid man. This is the picture we have in Scripture. Turn with me, hold your place here, and turn over a couple of chapters to John chapter 7, verse 45. John chapter 7, verse 45. What has happened here is the Sanhedrin has sent out some, a commission to confront Jesus and to arrest him, and they return empty-handed. Jesus, once again, has slipped away, and they have been thwarted in their efforts to arrest him. When they return, there's a dialogue that takes place among the Sanhedrin, and we get a little insight into Nicodemus' character. 
Verse 45, The officers therefore came to the chief priests and Pharisees and said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, Never did a man speak the way this man speaks. The Pharisees answered and said, Well, you have not been led astray, have you? In other words, you haven't been caught up with this man. No one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, has he? In other words, none of you have believed in him. None of the Pharisees have believed in him. But this multitude, which does not know the law, is accursed. In other words, the rabble follow him, but the people who really know, the intellectual elite, the students of Scripture, they haven't been deceived. And then Nicodemus says something. Now, what we see here is that Nicodemus is, is, I believe he's a believer by this point. But he he doesn't take a stand. So often people think, well, you run into somebody like this that doesn't take a stand. Well, they're not truly saved. Well, that is heresy. That is absolute heresy. Because you can be a believer and be a failure, not have any doctrine, and not have the courage of your convictions and still be a believer. Look at what Nicodemus said, what we see about him here. Nicodemus said to them, that is, John makes the point, he who came to him at night being one of them. He was one of the Sanhedrin. Now, if you're using a New American Standard Bible, your text reads a little different from what I just read. Your text will read, He who came to him before. But there's a textual problem here. And I believe that the text reflected in the King James Version or the majority text, which underlies the New King James Version and some other other translations, is better than the text that they used for the New American Standard in NIV. Because this, other places where, G, where John, uh, John refers to Nicodemus, he uses this same phrase. Nicodemus said to them, that is, he who came to him at night. That's how you remember Nicodemus. He's the one who came to Jesus at night. Being one of them said, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? Now, Nicodemus isn't taking a stand for Jesus as the Messiah. He's not reminding them of all that he has done and all his credentials. And, you know, this guy really has a point. He's not taking any stand like that, but he is not going to let Jesus be unjustly condemned. So he's going to just step out with a little bit of courage and just say a little bit. And they turn and answer to him say, You're not also from Galilee, are you? In other words, you're not part of this rabble. And see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. Now here they just expose... They pull up their skirts and show their, their biblical ignorance at this point because Jonah was from a little town just a few miles down the road from Nazareth. So Jonah was from Galilee. But they're, they're prejudiced. See, Judeans were very prejudiced against that country backwoods rabble that lives up in Galilee. They, they don't talk right. They use bad grammar. They're not very educated. They're just not as sophisticated and as, uh, as we are down here in Jerusalem. So that's our first look at Nicodemus after his salvation as as a man that is very timid and just doesn't really want to expose himself to the attack of his peers and his comrades. And that's so much like so many people, isn't it? That they really don't want to come under the attack of their family, their friends, people they've known all their lives. They, They come to Christ and they're timid, they're uncertain, They lack any doctrine to give them confidence. They feel pressured and intimidated by past religious associates and the past tyranny of religion and ritual and legalism and guilt. And this is the same thing we see in Nicodemus. But we see a transformation in him by the end of the gospel. Turn over to John 19, verse 38. John 19, 38. This is after the crucifixion. And after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one. See, he's a, he's a secret one. Nicodemus was a secret one. There were many others who were believers, but they weren't going to let anybody know that because it would cost them their position in society. It would cost them their job. It would cost them their place on the Sanhedrin. So they kept it quiet. But here they finally get the courage of their convictions. Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission. He came, therefore, and took away his body. And Nicodemus came also, who had first come to him by night. Notice again, it's Nicodemus, you remember, he's the one who first came to Jesus by night, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, 
and about a, about a hundred pounds weight. And so they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews, and then they put the body into the tomb. Now let's go back to John chapter 3. Here's our man. He comes to Jesus at night. Now why is that important? What is John saying here? Now he did come at night. I'm not denying the physical reality of what actually historically took place. He came at night. But John is going to use the fact that Nicodemus came at night to to emphasize a spiritual principle. John is saying more. Night in Scripture is darkness. It represents sin and blackness. John is saying that Nicodemus is typical of every unbeliever who comes to Jesus out of the darkness of the world, out of the darkness of their carnality. See, many unbelievers come to Jesus just like this. They're timid. They come slowly. They come one small step at a time, uncertain and cautious, but they still keep coming. Sometimes it takes people many years as they progress as they, in their understanding. And we see in Nicodemus that he has made taken many steps in approaching the gospel. He's not there yet in John 3, but he has made advances. And this is true of so many unbelievers. Now, Nicodemus has his Ph.D. in religion, but he is still in spiritual darkness, which unfortunately is like so many religious leaders today. They've studied everything. They've got the degrees. They go out and they teach on spirituality, but they don't have a clue as to what spirituality is all about. Let's see how John uses darkness even in his own chapter. And it's no coincidence that he returns to this theme of light and darkness down in verse 19. He starts off, Nicodemus came at night in the darkness. Verse 19. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But what's happened? Nicodemus has come out of darkness to the light. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. And then John 8.12, John returns again to this theme, where Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in the darkness, but shall have the light of life. And again in John 12.35, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light that darkness may not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. And then John 12.46, I have come as a light into the world that everyone who believes in me may not remain in darkness. This theme is expressed throughout the scripture. In Matthew 4.16, The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And to those who were sitting in the land of shadow... In the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. And then we're told in Acts 26:18, Paul says that we're to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Darkness and light are used in the Scriptures metaphorically to refer to sin and evil and the loss of salvation and light, the position of truth and salvation in Jesus Christ. So Nicodemus comes at night in the darkness. Notice how he begins the conversation. He's uncertain. He begins on a little bit of a tangent, a side note. He doesn't come right to the point. Somewhat like John and Andrew back in chapter 1. When they start off to follow Jesus, Jesus turns and says to them, what do you seek? And they sort of stammer around and him and haw, and they say, finally, teacher, where are you staying? Now, they didn't care where Jesus was staying. They weren't going to build an inn and say, Jesus slept here and attract all the tourists. But, but they're uncertain. They don't really know what to say. How many times have we seen somebody we really wanted to talk to and were really impressed with and we wanted to ask them questions, and as soon as they gave us their attention, we just sort of fumbled and stumbled and stammered all over ourselves and we just couldn't even say what we intended to say. And that's how Nicodemus is. He's, he's timid. He's uncertain. He's not going to approach Jesus directly. He's going to approach Him indirectly. But what we see is that Jesus is the one who knows what's in their heart. 
He knows what they're thinking. He knows what they want. And he doesn't uh, attack them. He doesn't criticize them. He doesn't embarrass them because of their timidity. Instead, because of, he knows what is in them and what they're really seeking, he addresses the real issue. His response, his gentleness, his directness gives them permission to come to him directly. This man came to him by night in verse 2 and said to him, Rabbi. What an amazing thing that Nicodemus addresses Jesus as Rabbi. Jesus is this unlearned carpenter's son from that backwoods place of Arkansas. Not Arkansas. (laughs) Galilee. He's never been to Harvard or Princeton or Yale. Doesn't have any of the theological degrees from Jerusalem. He has, is not a member of the Sanhedrin. He's not a member of the Pharisaical party. He doesn't have all of the credentials. But Nicodemus knows that there have been things that have been happening. He's heard what Jesus has said in the temple. He's heard about his cleansing of the temple and his miracles. And he's impressed. And so when he comes to this man who comes out of the backwoods of the north, he addresses him as rabbi. Now, what does that tell us about Nicodemus? That tells us that Nicodemus has come a long way. None of the other Pharisees or members of the Sanhedrin would come to Jesus and call him rabbi. But but Nicodemus is a seeker after truth. Even though he thinks he's learned it all and he's studied it all and he has the advanced degrees of all his rabbinical studies, Nicodemus is also teachable. He has humility. And before we can ever bring anybody to the cross, before anybody is ever saved, they have to have some teachability and some level of true humility to realize they can't do it all themselves. And so we see this in Nicodemus, that he is a man who is truly ready to learn something about the gospel. He knows he doesn't know it all. He says, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God. We know. Not just I know, but we know. It is the third person plural. That tells us that Jesus has been quite a matter of discussion among the Sanhedrin. That there are others besides Nicodemus on the Sanhedrin who have looked into the Scriptures and what Jesus has done and all of His miracles and His cleansing of the temple. And they look at it and they say, This man gives us the evidence we need. He fits the picture portrayed in the Old Testament. He has the credentials. He has the claims. And so controversy has erupted at the highest levels of political power and the highest governing body in Jerusalem. Jesus teaching his miracles, his temple cleansing, is a controversial issue. And Nicodemus says, we know this. Now, the issue is not that his evidence wasn't enough. It's that they were hostile to the truth. We know, and then he says, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. We know that you are a teacher come from God. Now, that, he's not just saying, well, we, we know that, golly, if you're going to have do some miracles, that God's got to be with you. This is not some general statement. The term teacher from God by this time had become a, typical, I mean, a technical term. In the Qumran literature, what was found at the Dead Sea Scrolls, there is constant reference to the coming teacher of righteousness, who was a messianic figure that they were looking forward to. So that the term, a teacher from God, is a messianic title now uh, for the coming one. That he is going to be a teacher from God. So the fact that Nicodemus comes to him and says, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, He's saying right there, there are those of us on the Sanhedrin who know from what you have done that you are the Messiah. You have made the claims by cleansing the temple. You've you've demonstrated your credentials by all the miracles that you've done. We know that you are the Messiah. For no one could do the things that you have done. He says that you are a teacher sent from God. This is a term that was used of Moses in the same way that Moses was sent from God and Moses is the archetype of the great teacher. We know that you follow in that footsteps and perhaps you are the fulfillment of Moses' prophecy that a greater prophet would come. 
you see how John is tying many different strands together here? There's a rich background to this conversation. It's not what it appears just in a surface reading. But we see that Nicodemus is coming and he is asking of Jesus some important questions. That you have come from God as a teacher. And then he says, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And this is not the statement of a skeptic. This is the statement of a man who fully, who is fully convinced of everything that the Old Testament says. Now, that's a problem we have today. See, we're going out and we're witnessing to people who don't believe the Old Testament. And so you can lay out all the signs that Jesus performed. And they'll say, eh, just coincidence. See, they're irrational. Totally irrational. They don't care about evidence or logic or reason. And that's the problem with modern man and trying to witness to modern man is he just wants to do what he wants to do regardless of any facts. But Nicodemus has certain assumptions that are part of his very nature. And one of these is that he believes the Old Testament is true and valid. And secondly, he believes that the promised Messiah is going to perform certain miracles. And the conclusion is that if the Old Testament predicted this and this man is doing this, that there's only one inescapable conclusion. And that is that you are that man. Now, I have some real questions for you. Is my righteousness good enough? See, he doesn't come out and say that, but that's what he's asking. Because in his system, in his theological system, for all his life, he's been trying to be good enough for God. He's afraid that maybe there's something in his background, something he's done that's... before God, and he has worked hard and diligently at accumulating enough good works to gain God's approval. And so he is concerned about his eternal destiny. Now, he doesn't say any of that. How do we know that that's what his real question is? Because that's the question that Jesus answers. Jesus doesn't answer about his signs or his credentials or his being the Messiah. He goes right to the real issue in verse 3. You see, Nicodemus is saying, is my righteousness good enough to get me into the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a man... Notice, he doesn't say unless you, Nicodemus. He's going to play this game with Nicodemus. We're going to thrust and parry. You're going to make this a nice little third-person academic discussion. I will too. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now here we see something very interesting in the Greek. Another example of this sort of two-tiered or three-tiered level of meaning that John's driving home. He leaves certain things with a certain level of ambiguity in order to make us think. When he says a man must be born again, he uses the Greek word anothen. A-N-O-T-H-E-N. Now, if you look this word up in any Greek-English lexicon, you'll find that it has two meanings. The first meaning is that this word means again. The second meaning is that this word means from above. So, if a word has two meanings, you have to decide from context what the meaning is. Is Jesus saying you have to be born again? Or is he saying you have to be born from above? John doesn't give us any contextual clues. Why? He leaves it intentionally vague because both are true. It's a double entendre. You have to be born, you have to experience a second birth. But the source of that second birth is from above. You can't do it on your own. Your righteousness is never going to be good enough. You can't do that which will get you into the kingdom of heaven. It has to be performed from above. And this takes us back to a theme back in the first chapter of John. It reminds us of what, what he says in John 1.13. To those who believe in his name at the end of verse 12, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You see, the second birth has to be performed by God. It can't be performed by us. Jesus answered and said, Truly I say to you, unless someone is born 
again, and that birth is also from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And one thing we'll notice in this passage is that Nicodemus takes it as the first meaning, the surface meaning. That's how he responds. Can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter into his, a second time into his mother's womb? No. See, he's taking it at that superficial, secondary level. But as we shall see, this word is used a couple of more times in the remainder of this chapter. And John gradually shifts our attention from the primary meaning or the superficial meaning of again to the more significant meaning of from above. That this birth has its source not in man, but in God. Now, when Jesus says this to Nicodemus, he expects Nicodemus to know this principle. How would he expect Nicodemus to know this principle? Well, first of all, we have to pay attention to the fact that he says the, uses the term kingdom of God, which was a, a term related to eschatology. Eschatology refers from the Greek word eschatos, meaning last. So it's the study of the last days or future things and the ultimate coming of the messianic kingdom. Now, the only doctrine of regeneration that the, uh, that the Pharisees had at that time, would be ba- or that the Jews had, was based on Isaiah 66.22. So turn with me in the Old Testament to Isaiah 66, the last chapter of Isaiah, verse 22. Isaiah 66.22 says, For just as the new heavens... And the new earth which I make will endure before me, declares the Lord. So your offspring and your name will endure. And it shall be from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath. All mankind will come to bow down before me. See, they understood regeneration as a technical eschatological term. It wasn't understood necessarily as an individual thing, but as a national and physical thing. That God was going to regenerate the earth and all that was in it when he came in his kingdom. That it was future. Jesus recognizes this in Matthew chapter 19, verse 28. Matthew chapter 19, verse 28. Jesus is talking to the disciples about... Their, their question of that Peter asked, he says, Peter says to Jesus, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will be for us? A question about rewards in the coming kingdom. And Jesus said to them, Truly, I truly, I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. In the regeneration. So this is a technical term for the messianic kingdom. In the regeneration. So the Jews understood this as a term referring to the future. So we'll put it down here. Future kingdom. But what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is if you're going to be in the regeneration, then first of all you have to be regenerated. Right here. If you're not regenerated now... You won't be in the regeneration. He drives it home as an individual fact. This is something that everybody has to come to grips with. Unless you are regenerated, which means a second birth, a technical term for a second birth, to be born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, what what does it mean to be born again? We have to be very technical here and ask the question, what is born? You see, when man was originally created, when Adam was created in the garden, he had a body, the square represents the body, and inside that body, and I diagrammed this with two overlapping circles because they're interrelated, the Word of God divides between the soul and the spirit, remember? That the Word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to dividing asunder, what? The soul and the spirit. So they're so closely connected that only the Word of God can distinguish their functions. You have the soul and the spirit. So man has three parts, which is called by theologians a trichotomy. 
Try three. He has three parts, body, soul, and spirit. But when Adam sinned, he died spiritually. That means he lost his human spirit. This is the human spirit. The human spirit is that immaterial aspect of man which gives him the capacity to have a relationship with God, to understand spiritual truth, and to have eternal life. But what happens at the when you're born again, you have already been born physically, you have a physical body, and you have a human soul, which is where your mentality, volition, consciousness, self-awareness reside, but you are born without a human spirit. Therefore, without a human spirit, you have no way to understand spiritual truth, no way to have a relationship with God, and you do not possess eternal life. And the consequence is that you will die physically, and unless there is a spiritual rebirth, you will suffer eternal condemnation. And this is the point in John 3.18. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is, Nicodemus, unless you receive this human spirit, you can't have a relationship with God and so you can't be in the regeneration. And now Nicodemus is asking, how do you receive this human spirit? He's totally confused. And we receive the human spirit by faith alone in Christ alone. When we believe in Jesus Christ, which is where we get to down in verse 18, he who believes in him is not judged. When we believe in Jesus Christ, at that instant of faith alone in Christ alone, God the Holy Spirit creates and imparts to us a new human spirit, which is our regeneration. And with that new human spirit, God the Father imputes to that human spirit His very own eternal life. And so we can have eternal life. And that human spirit interacts with our soul and gives us the the capacity on the one hand to understand all doctrine and spiritual truth and to have a relationship with God. It is God the Holy Spirit who works in and through our human spirit to make doctrinal doctrine understandable and perspicuous to us. But without the human spirit, we can't go anywhere, we can't have a relationship with God, and we can't understand the things of the Spirit of God. Why? The Scripture says, because they are spiritually, i.e. the human spirit, they are spiritually discerned. So Nicodemus says to him, totally confused, thinks of this in physical terms alone, and says, how... Can a man be born when he is old? This is the second question he's asking. The first question was, was really unstated. And is my righteousness good enough? So now he doesn't say, how can a man be born when he is old? So he's obviously talking to himself, about himself. He's an old man. He's, okay, we've got to get a little personal here. But how can I do this? I'm old. He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb, can he? And Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you are born of water, and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, this is a passage that people have done all kinds of somersaults around to try to interpret it. I have studied this at some detail throughout the years. It's very interesting how Jesus uses this, and we must interpret it consistently with what's been going on and how Jesus operates in all of these chapters. He takes that which is present at a physical level and uses that then to throw the attention onto the spiritual level. So he talks about water and pneuma. And I'm going to put the Greek word up here because the word pneuma can be translated wind or it can be translated spirit. The question is just how is it to be understood here And the context gives us the clue in verse 6 because it says there, that which is born of spirit is spirit. Now, let's look at this, which appears to be a somewhat enigmatic statement to us. And we must realize that whatever Jesus was saying to Nicodemus had to be understandable by Nicodemus. You know, we say by the spirit, by the the water and the spirit, what in the world does that mean? Well, Nicodemus knows the Old Testament. So, let's turn back to Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25, and find out what Jesus was referring to from the Old Testament. This is a direct reference to the new covenant promise of God in Ezekiel 36. Remember a couple of weeks ago when we were studying about the water being turned into wine, 
and they went to the wedding, and at the wedding feast, what was there? The water pots for the... Why was all that water there? It was for the purification of the Jews. And we saw then that one of the major issues in Jewish religion is cleansing before God. They knew they couldn't have a relationship with God unless they were cleansed. And they knew from the Mosaic Law that almost anything they did defiled them spiritually. So they were obsessed with cleansings and washings. And they knew that they had to be washed by water. So almost every time that you come to water, especially in John, it's not talking about water baptism. He never refers to water baptism. It has to do with this whole idea of cleansing. That's the imagery. That's the metaphor of water. And we see that in this new covenant promise of Ezekiel 36:25, where God says, Then, on the basis of this new covenant, then I will what? Sprinkle water on you, and you will be clean. This is a metaphor for the cleansing of sin. I will sprinkle water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Sin will no longer be an issue. You will be cleansed completely. And then what does he say? Verse 26, Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will what? Put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. So what are the two elements that are referred to in the New Covenant promise from the Old Testament? Water for cleansing from sin and the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is, is he, he's almost playing with Nicodemus. He's, you've studied the law and you don't understand these things. You know, let's go back and look at this again. You've got to be born by water and spirit. This is a clear mention of regeneration back in Ezekiel 36. And you don't understand this and you think you're a teacher of the law and a ruler of the people? Wake up, Nicodemus. Jesus says, I say to you, unless you're born of water and the spirit, both of which refer to the, the two aspects of regeneration. Now, why do I say they're both aspects of regeneration? Some people will interpret this passage, the water referring to physical birth and the spirit referring to to spiritual birth. Why is it not that? Hold your place in John 3 and turn to Titus 3. Turn to Titus 3. I want you to see these things because the Word of God is precise and even though Nicodemus didn't have Titus in front of him, he didn't need it, we have Titus in front of us and God always provides for us the clues we need to interpret Scripture by following that that important hermeneutical principle of comparing Scripture with Scripture. Look at Titus 3, verse 5. He, that's a reference to God the Father, God our Savior, specifically God the Son here, verse 4, God the Son, He saved us, how? Not on the basis which we of deeds which we have done in righteousness. Once again, it's not righteousness. It's not your works. That's not the issue. Never has been, never will be. It's not your sin. That's not the issue. Never has been, never will be. The issue is faith in Christ. Is it there or not? Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by what? By the washing, right here, cleansing. The washing of regeneration and what? Renewal of the Holy Spirit. The same two elements that are mentioned in Ezekiel 36 are mentioned by Jesus when he's talking to Nicodemus and they're picked up by the Apostle Paul when he's writing this letter to Titus. These are the two elements that take place, two of the key elements that take place in salvation. There is an absolute total cleansing from sin. Sin is not the issue. You are cleansed and purified and that relates to the imputation of the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ to the point of salvation. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you will do. The only thing that matters is the faith alone in Christ alone. And then there is a renewal, a new birth. You are given a new spirit, a human spirit, by God the Holy Spirit at the point of salvation. And this is what qualifies you to enter into the kingdom of God, the future Regeneration. And then Jesus goes on in verse 6 to sum it up, and he says, That which is born of flesh is flesh. That's physical birth. That which is born of flesh is flesh. It has a body, has a human body, and a human soul. 
But that's not enough to get into heaven because you have to have a human spirit in order to get into heaven. And that comes from God the Holy Spirit. But he says, and that which is born of the Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, is the human spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. You must be born from above. Why the wind blows? Where does the wind come from? See, John's beginning to shift the Jesus is beginning to shift the emphasis from the again concept to the above concept. Where does the wind come from? The wind comes from above. Remember what Jesus said? The, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. God sends the rain on the just and the unjust. Where does that come from? It comes from a God, from above. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born, what? Of the Spirit. Where's the Spirit? The Spirit's above. It's not just again. It's also above. It comes from the Holy Spirit. And Nicodemus then says, well, how can these things be? What are the mechanics? And we'll look at the mechanics when we come back next Sunday morning, what are the mechanics of how a person can be regenerated? What is the basis for regeneration and truly having a spiritual life? See, you're not born with a spiritual life. That's the biggest heresy or error in our world today, is people think that they have just automatically a spiritual life. But the Bible says you're not born with a spiritual life. In fact, you are born dead, spiritually dead, in your trespasses and sins. Something has to happen. There has to be a new birth. Without that new birth, you can't have a relationship with God. And that comes by faith alone in Christ alone. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for the clarity of Scripture that is so perspicuous it tells us exactly who we are. Just as Jesus knew what was in the hearts of men, your word reveals to us what is in our hearts, what our need is that we are born hopeless, helpless, and under condemnation. But we have been given a free gift through Jesus Christ, salvation. And all we have to do is accept that. We are told in the Scriptures to come to freely drink of the waters of salvation. There is nothing that we have to do. There is nothing that we can do. Our works are not the issue. The only thing that matters is accepting that gift. So, Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is not sure of their eternal destiny, that right now they would accept this free gift that you have given them. They would say to you in silent prayer, Father, I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I accept your free gift of salvation. That's all that's needed. We do nothing to work for it or to earn it. It's totally free. Now, Father, we pray that you would help us to Think about these things throughout the week. Call them to our minds that we may think about them, concentrate on them, come to understand them, that they may be uh, restored in our soul by God the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.